The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. You okay, honey? What you got there? It's my mom. Hi, Dale. Sorry I didn't call sooner, Angel, but we decided to stay in the city an extra couple days. Look down the phone and come to bed. <laughs> Honey, stop that. It's my kid. Baby, what are you staring at out the window? Get over here and look at this. What, what is that? Uh, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, Dale, I am so sorry. I didn't know your mother was in Denver. She wasn't in Denver. She was in Atlanta. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> I'm sure that they'll have some answers. Sarah. It's okay. Honey. I don't have time right now, some damn fool. Johnston. What? Listen to me. Dale Turner's mother died tonight in another explosion. Atlanta. Oh, my God. Welcome everyone, it is Thursday, October 13th, 2022. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes, everything will be If what we're going to discuss today seems beyond your ability to accept or contemplate, well, I can accept that. Unfortunately, it doesn't change anything, though. As the U.S. midterms draw ever closer, the scheduled Made in America holocausts are all now in play. You can pick your holocaust. Nuclear, vaccine, gender, climate, viral, ideological, racist, pandemic, or all of the above the last being the most comprehensive and accurate, but this week's popular holocaust is the nuclear one. Another manufactured in the USA crisis that we find ourselves once again forced to address, which we shall do right after our reminder that, should you be among the lucky survivors of what seems to be coming our way, you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links and archive broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Canada must be prepared for a worst-case scenario. This is the government's paramount responsibility, Mr. Speaker. So to the Defence Minister, I ask... What meetings has she had with Cabinet and her allied counterparts to prepare Canada in the event Russia acts on their threat and retaliates? 
government is prepared for any eventuality. We are putting in across-the-board measures to support Ukraine in this situation. We have NORAD modernization as our priority. We are working very closely with our American counterparts, and we will leave no stone unturned for the safety and security of this country, this continent, and indeed Ukraine itself. Thank you, Mr. President. Russia has 40 nuclear-powered weaponized icebreakers. Do you want to know how many Canada has? Zero. Russia has 18 military bases near Canada's Arctic border, whereas we are struggling to get one naval base up and running. Yesterday, Russia's foreign affairs minister said, quote, a third world war will be nuclear and it will be devastating. These remarks are deeply concerning and present a serious threat to our national security and public safety. So I'm asking the government, what measures are they, are they taking this seriously, Mr. Speaker? I'm not quite convinced by the Minister's Defence answers. What meetings has she had to make sure we are prepared? Yeah, great question. Mr. Speaker, I would like to assure my honourable colleague and this House of Commons that we are indeed prepared for every eventuality, including the information that we have received relating to nuclear versions that Mr. Putin has been making. I would like to say that we need to be non-provocative and we need to be rational in this situation and we need to act together as a country and support each other in this time of need. Thank you, Mr. General, just with my last minute, would you say that Canada is prepared for any eventuality in terms of defending itself? Uh, Mr. Chair, any eventuality is uh, is a pretty broad uh, characterization of the security environment, and we have to deal in uh, in probabilities because the imagination could run wild, and so we need to. Sorry, I was just going to say um, when the war in uh, Ukraine, the Russian invasion first broke out, I had brought the question to our Minister of Defence, Minister Anand, to ask: Is Canada prepared for the threats that uh, Russia is making, not only to Ukraine but to the world and those who def help defend Ukraine? And she responded that Canada is prepared for any eventuality. But gave, given your your comments and what we've learned during the study, I am very concerned that that is not the case. Uh, just with my concluding few seconds, can you comment on what needs to be done today in the coming months to ensure we are prepared for the most likely or any eventuality? Uh, so, Mr. Chair, as, as uh, I stated, we need to rebuild our readiness uh, so that we can respond um, with sufficient number of forces at the speed required. And so that is, uh, is what we are focused on right now, those four elements of readiness that I talked about. Thank you very much, sir. I have little doubt that Canada's civil defense preparations are every bit as reliable, up-to-date, and as clearly established today as they were way back in 1983. And yes, I'm being sarcastic because 1983 was when the then Regional Director of Emergency Planning Canada during a Toronto briefing told Mark Emery that you're a bright young man, you could make quite a contribution to the military on this. You're better informed than I am. And what he was referring to was the nuclear preparedness of the Canadian government in 1983. And what we learned then was that they weren't prepared for anything at all. And on this topic, clearly very little has changed. You can hear that in the parliamentary exchanges we just listened to. And you can hear the entire context of this sad state of affairs, or is it this sad affair of state, by checking out our July 21st show entitled A New Clear Vision of Nuclear War, which we broadcast in response to New York City's Nuclear Preparedness Public Service Announcement. Remember that? 
you can hear the original on our broadcast of that day. But most importantly on that broadcast, we warned that just as the public's general ignorance about COVID, viruses, and climate matters have been used against them in advancing a globalist agenda, so too we can expect the public's general ignorance about surviving a nuclear event to be used against them. In fact, it was hard not to notice that New York's Nuclear response strategy sounded a lot like the city's COVID one. Don't ask questions, stay inside, and trust public officials. The PSA itself was figuratively a nuclear event, not only due to the nature of its warning, but because everything about it suggested another control agenda about to be imposed upon the American people. And here it is, just in time for the midterms. The propaganda surrounding Biden's desired nuclear event has focused mainly on a myth about a single individual, Vladimir Putin, and it has been quite a successful one in spreading the virus of Putin derangement syndrome, a mental disorder we didn't label as such, but identified two weeks ago on our September 29 show, entitled Ukraine and Putin's Nuclear Reaction. That's when we illustrated how all of the official narratives are ignoring all of the pertinent facts, histories, and events necessary for any rational understanding of the situation in Ukraine. And of course, that is the intention of those official narratives. If you missed our September 29 show, check it out at your earliest opportunity because it's an important one. It very much illustrates and supports what we're about to hear in a few moments. On that broadcast, we featured the comments of Martin Armstrong, whose upcoming book, The Plot to Seize Russia, is sure to be a game-changer for anyone who only knows the official narrative about Putin. And Armstrong speaks from first-hand personal knowledge and experience. As Armstrong made explicitly clear, Putin is neither a communist nor a member of the deep state. And even more fascinatingly, all those quote-unquote murders assumed to have been committed by Putin, were actually conducted by Russia's own deep state and named by Armstrong on that show. And most significantly, Putin has done everything possible to avert the crisis in Ukraine. Since the beginning and even earlier, he has been absolutely clear and precise about why Russian troops entered Ukraine, stated his intentions and goals in advance, and followed through with the promised subsequent action, which he continues to do as the leaders of the Western nations simply turn a blind eye to the reality of the whole situation. So, on this side of our upcoming bumper, Greg Reese once again smashes through all of the myths and lies that the Western media spreads about Putin, as heard on his October 5th Reese report. While on the return side of the bumper, Mike Adams, with a few nuclear survival tips which echo those we gave two weeks ago. More about that when we return. But first, here's Greg Reese. People of the West are being told that Putin is so bad that nuclear war is a reasonable option to get rid of him. And if you think this may be true, I urge you first to take the time to watch Oliver Stone's interview with Vladimir Putin and see for yourself if this one man is worth starting a war over. The mainstream talking point is that Vladimir Putin is a killer because he was in the KGB. But what they won't tell you is that he resigned from the KGB because he did not agree with their methods. He described communism as a blind alley far away from the mainstream of civilization. 
He is a patriot of old Russia, the thousand-year melting pot of many cultures, and for his entire leadership has sought peace with NATO. For a brief moment, it looked as if President Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev were going to end the mutual assured destruction arms race between the two countries. But by the time Putin got a seat at the table, the mood had changed. Putin tells us that President Clinton tried persuading him to join the U.S. in leaving the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty of 1972, citing an ambiguous threat from Iran as an excuse. Putin suggested that if they were to abandon this foundation of arms control, then they should develop a new anti-ballistic agreement. The United States had other plans, and after 9-11, President Bush announced that the U.S. would withdraw from the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. After doing this, the U.S. then began developing missile systems around Russia's borders. Putin has been assisting the United States in the war against terror and has seen how the U.S have been using terrorist groups against Russia. When U.S.-backed terrorists in Georgia attacked South Ossetia, Russia moved in to defend civilians, and the American media spun it as if Russia was the aggressor. When an overwhelming majority of Crimeans voted to join Russia, the Western media spun it as if Russia had coerced them. In 2012, the U.S. State Department openly meddled in Russia's elections. And in 2014, they orchestrated a violent overthrow of the Ukrainian government in plain view. Early this year, the U.S. State Department threatened to shut down the Nord Stream pipeline. If Russia invades Ukraine, one way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. Followed by President Biden. If, uh, if Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine uh, again, then uh, there, will be, uh, we, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. But how will, you, how will you do that exactly, since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control? We will, uh, I promise you, we'll be able to do it. And now it appears as if the U.S. has done it as the State Department brags about it. While NATO desperately seeks world domination, the Russian Foreign Ministry has built an alliance with the majority of the world, an alliance backed by sound money that respects national sovereignty and strives for world peace. At this point, it seems fairly obvious that if Americans don't wake up to the fact that they are no longer the good guys, then they stand to lose all the freedoms that America used to stand for. Reporting for InfoWars, this is Greg Reese. You know, it's very easy to talk casually about nuclear war without really grasping the real-world implications of what it means for day-to-day -day living or day-to-day -day dying, as the case may be, for all of us who share this planet. And a nuclear war is almost certainly coming. And remember, the West is pushing Russia almost 
provoking, almost begging for a nuclear war. And in a recent interview I did with Steve Quayle, he indicated that based on his sources and analysis, that the United States would actually be the target of the first strike of Russian nuclear missiles. Russia has far more advanced nuclear delivery systems than, well, any other country in the world. Now, here's what a lot of people don't understand. America getting hit with, let's say, 20 to 25 nuclear weapons simultaneously. Believe it or not, that does not instantly annihilate every person in America. Far from it. In fact, most people would survive that strike by far. Yes, there would be millions dead in the cities or, or the targets, wherever they are. Perhaps many millions, perhaps 10 million. But that's a small fraction of the total population of the country. What would kill the rest of the people is the collapse of the infrastructure that provides the necessary essentials for life, which is, you know, food, water, electricity, spare parts, diesel fuel, you know, all these things. And these are things that you can do something about. And especially if you need to go, you know, hide out for a couple of weeks to let the iodine-131 reduce its uh, potency in the atmosphere. You know, the half-life is about, let's say, about seven days, I think, uh, roughly about a week. So if you stay indoors for two weeks, then the amount of iodine-131 still circulating in the air is one-fourth of what it used to be at the beginning of that. So it's one more reason to have a food supply, water supply, and so on. But the, the things that are going to kill most people are things that you can do something about. Surviving a nuclear war is quite possible. In fact, even in World War II, most people in Japan did not die from the atomic bombs dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Yes, hundreds of thousands died, but turns out that wasn't most of the population. Now, I know what you're saying, that the atomic bombs dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima were very, very small in terms of yield compared to Russia's nuclear weapons today, which I think start at one megaton and go even higher. So at, what, 100 megatons, that's something like 6,000 times more powerful than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. So, oh, but, but most ICBMs don't have 100 megaton warheads, by the way. They're significantly smaller than that, but still capable of a lot of destruction. However, the farther you are away from ground zero, the safer your situation becomes very quickly. It's based on the inverse square rule of distance, essentially. So the actual blast radius, the kill zone or the total destruction zone for these nuclear weapons is not as large as you might suppose. Now, right, a, a nuke dropped directly on New York City or lower Manhattan, yes, if it's of sufficient size, like 50 megatons or even larger, it's going to obliterate every standing building in lower Manhattan. It's going to kill every resident there. But it doesn't mean everybody in upstate New York or everybody in New Jersey is dead or anything like that. Mike Adams' October 6th perspective on the survivability of nuclear war was a literal reflection of what we covered on our show two weeks ago based on our own investigation into nuclear issues almost 40 years ago. And what that tells me is that not much has changed in the basics about nuclear energy and explosions. 
stay indoors for two weeks, exactly the advice we gave in 1983, advice about which the Canadian Defense Department apparently knew nothing about. There is a significant technical issue that I do want to mention about how a nuclear bomb's energy is released upon detonation. I don't think I really got into this last time. And this speaks to the issue of, quote-unquote, how powerful a particular bomb is in terms of, you know, 1 megaton, 2 megatons, 50 megatons, or 100 megatons. Those seem like big differences, but the differentials between those numbers aren't particularly significant, even though it sounds so on the surface. But there is an exception. And Adams was correct in noting that the blast radius zone is not as large as you might suppose. Just look at the average image of a mushroom cloud emanating from a narrow source at the base, which is where the direct blast radius zone is. The vast majority of the energy released from a nuclear weapon is directed upward into the atmosphere, where it cannot do much damage except in one regard. Nuclear weapons are detonated either as air blasts or as ground blasts. In the scenario we depicted on our show two weeks ago, we discovered that the most efficient and effective means of destroying a city of civilians was via an air blast about two miles up, with a bomb no greater than two megatons. Based on a detonation over at City Hall, that would pretty much level a downtown area of my own hometown of London, Ontario, whereas the people living out in White Oaks area would be able to survive, especially if they were in their basements at the time of the blast. A bomb of 10 megatons would only very marginally create a larger blast zone because all of the excess energy would be upwardly directed, and there would be minimal fallout, as was the case in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. However, when targeting a military underground installation, for example, a ground blast would create an immense danger of nuclear fallout, which, as we pointed out previously, is literally the dust that will be sucked up from the ground into the blast, carrying it high into the atmosphere. That is why, in New York's nuclear warning PSA, they advise people to shed their clothes that has any outdoor dust on it. Most people hearing that for the first time just laughed it off because they couldn't take it seriously. Again, based on all of the misinformation and mythologies about nuclear anything. So getting accurate, or even approximately accurate information on any events during a war situation is difficult at best. And that's why I am, once again, pleased to introduce a number of new voices, both to myself and to our show. Beginning on this side of the upcoming bumper with Stephen Gardner, whose October 10th report includes some of the most recent developments up to the date of this broadcast. I learned more about the specifics of this past weekend's events in Ukraine from his brief report than from any other single source. And on the return side of the bumper... From October 10th, the Duran, featuring the voices of Alex Christoforo and Alexander Mikoris with their insights into this past weekend's events in Ukraine and beyond. Now, I've been trying to share with you that the Russian Federation Army uh, isn't super strong, but they are stronger than what the U.S. media is letting on, and they have the ability to decimate Ukraine with ballistic missiles that can be fired from hundreds of miles away. Missile attacks like what we just saw in the last 24 hours. So they've proven they have this capability to drop hand-to-hand -hand combat 
and, and combat from tanks and start just using missile warfare over and over again to hit targets. Now, sadly, uh, Russia has a much bigger country and they have continued to escalate uh, by striking U uh, Ukraine's capital city today. Zelensky reacted, stating, they want panic and chaos. They want to destroy our energy system. Uh, they are hopeless. The second target is people. Such a time and such targets were specifically chosen to cause as much damage as possible. Ukraine was before this enemy appeared. Ukraine will be after him. So basically trying to keep hope and momentum going with the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian military. However, over the weekend, Ukraine carried out a mission and exploded a long line of gas tankers uh, on a vital Russian bridge in Crimea. Unfortunately, three civilians were killed. So now Vladimir Putin is calling this an act of terror and uh, says that he will escalate uh, the situation. And we know he did that uh, because of the missiles that were launched on close to a dozen cities in the last 24 hours. Now, here's why this is a big deal. Before countries like China and India, who are major trade partners with Russia, could say, please, seek for peace, let's end this conflict, because it was, it was somewhat one-sided. Now, however, with Ukraine attacking within the borders of Russia and killing innocent people, uh, they've now lost their leverage. So uh, Putin will now be able to push back on India and Russia and say, our people have been murdered, there's been acts of terror, we are now justified in escalating the war. So I'm, I'm, I'm in no way defending Putin, I'm just letting you know that there are a lot of chess pieces on the board that are moving right now, and uh, it, it's, it's heading in a scary direction. But here's where it gets scarier. Russia has now attacked, and Ukraine has made legitimate threats against Russia's ally, Belarus. Uh, up to this point, Belarus has been on alert, but they've been neutral. Well, now President Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus has now activated the Belarusian uh, military to help defend Russia and join forces with Putin on the north side of Ukraine. Lukashenko says Ukraine has now threatened Belarus and they will retaliate with military force. Belarus also condemned the bridge attack on Russia and said they have private intel that Ukraine plans to attack Belarus as well. Now, Ukraine is trying to get word to Belarus that they don't want any trouble and to stay out of the war. However, Lukashenko of Belarus seems like he has been waiting for just the right opportunity to back Russia and Vladimir Putin. And now with this attack on the bridge, they have that justification. So this military operation just escalated to a multi-country, multi-military war with Belarus and Putin and Russia joining forces to now attack Ukraine, who is backed by NATO. So can you see how more and more countries are getting involved? This is how a world war gets going. Poland has now issued a warning for all Polish citizens to immediately evacuate Belarus and Russia, citing that something big is coming. Now, to make matters worse, the missiles that hit the capital of Kiev in the last 24 hours, they were, they were fired from uh, land units, 
but also Iranian drones that I told you about about a month ago. However, they were fired over the country of Moldova. Now, Moldova is warning Russia to never send ballistic missiles over our sovereign territory ever again, or you will pay the price. So now Moldova is threatening Russia for Russia sending missiles over Moldova to hit Ukraine. So again, there's just so many moving pieces on this chessboard right now. Now, it seems to me that the West is now in a very difficult or potentially very difficult position because they shot their bolt or bolts prematurely. They shot them too early. They sent all their weapons to Ukraine too early. They egged Ukraine to start this offensive, which it did, but that hasn't turned out well, at least not as well as perhaps some were hoping. They haven't captured Kherson. They haven't captured Lysychansk. They're not marching on Crimea. Putin's army is not defeated. So it hasn't worked out quite the way they expected or perhaps hoped that it might. And, of course, the sanctions, they've done all realistically that they can. And it's difficult to see that they can do much more. And we're now getting more and more reports, and I don't think they're, uh, uh, you know, reports that we can discount. I mean, that, in fact... They've all also depleted their stockpiles of weapons. They don't have enough weapons to give uh, to give Ukraine now to replace what it's lost. They can't keep up this supply of weapons to Ukraine. Ukraine's running out of shells. It's run, running out of high Mars missiles. So I think that the risk the rest of the West runs is they're now going to be faced with what is starting to look like the real war. The, the, the Russians now purposefully going on the offensive, 300,000 men, a new aggressive general, 100 missiles being launched today, Ukraine's infrastructure being destroyed. Perhaps the next attack will be on the deeper bridges. Who knows? Lots of things like that going on. And it doesn't really have options. It doesn't really have any idea of what to do in reply. I mean, there'll be some people who talk about sending Western troops to fight in Ukraine. I have to say, I think that the mood amongst Western electorates is solidly opposed to that. And I think Western governments wouldn't risk it. That's my own personal view. Didn't the, the United States and the collective West know all of this going in? Yeah. I mean, they know that Russia has the capability to destroy Ukraine in a matter of days. Yeah. They must have known, they must have had military commanders who advised the Biden White House or NATO that Russia is going in very, uh, ve for lack of a better word, very soft and very carefully. They're going into Ukraine. They must have known this. So why, why did they let it get to this point? Why did they give all their weapons up front? Why did they, uh, they, they, they egg, why did they egg Alensky on so much to provoke Russia? And why did they egg the, the Kiev regime so much to provoke Russia? Uh, just for, just as an example, they put this massive postcard image of the of the Kerch Bridge mm. in the city center of Kiev, and they, they 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 had citizens going there and taking photos of it and mm. mocking the, the the Russians. 
they propagandized and lied to their citizens. They made they made their citizens believe Ukrainian citizens believe mm -hmm. that Russia is weak. Mm -hmm. Russia is losing. We're in 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 a matter of months, we're going to take back Crimea. Mm -hmm. uh, Putin's going to fall. I mean, they they knew what they were doing. They were stringing the people of Ukraine along. They knew that mm -hmm. Russia hadn't adequately. Um, responded to any of the of the ukraine provocations for seven months why why well, well this is a very good question and i think it's one of those questions we're going to uh, be debating for years but i'm going to say two things firstly i think the fact that the russians continue to act with such restraint for seven months created a mood of complacency and a complete a mood of arrogance i think people in washington in london in brussels in berlin and in other capitals, and of course in Kiev itself, came to the view that the Russians are a paper tiger, that they're not really in a position to do all the things that they're doing now, that, you know, if you can go on, uh, um, you know, hitting Crimean bridges, attacking Crimean airfields, shelling Belgorod, launching offensives here and there, that the Russians will just roll up and take it. And eventually, as I said, this will provoke a crisis in Moscow and Putin will fall. And I think... That brings me to the second point, because you said that they know, that they knew that Russia had all those capabilities. But did they know? I'm increasingly getting the view that political leaders are just not listening. So they were told before the war, don't disconnect Russia from SWIFT. They disconnected Russia from SWIFT. They were told by the experts, don't do it, it won't work. And they, they ignored the experts. They were told by the experts, don't take action against Russian energy exports. A fuel is tight, energy is tight. It's not going to have the effect that you think it will. And they went ahead and they took action against energy exports. So the question is, are they, you know, there are the experts there, there are the people in the military, there are presumably some people in the intelligence agencies. But one does wonder whether this very ideological political class that we have with its visceral hatred of Putin and indeed of Russia as a whole are capable of listening to objective advice from their experts. So things seem to be going their way superficially through, you know, the late summer, early autumn. You know, the Ukraine was on the offensive. They, they and, you know, Perhaps they thought they were winning <laughs> and, you know, they didn't understand that, you know, things are not quite as they seem. And that, I suspect, is partly the reason. And it's the only explanation I can come up with. But it's also an explanation which I think is supported by the surrounding facts. They're incompetent. They're incompetent. Yeah. They're, you know, they, you know what they say. They who are the, I think it was Jesus Christ who said it. The most blind are those who will not see. <laughs> they don't want to listen. They, they close their ears. They close their eyes to anything that contradicts their own prejudices and beliefs. And of course, you can do that up to a point. But, you know, eventually it catches up with you. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. One of the other quote-unquote moving pieces on the chessboard concerned NATO's 
sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines, which, as we heard from the woman questioning Biden on that topic earlier in the show, was under Germany's control and jurisdiction. When I was originally preparing for today's broadcast, I expected that event to be the primary focus of the show. But you might want to check out Press for Truth's report by Dan Dix on this issue, where he argued that the bombing of the pipeline was less an act against Russia or Putin than it was against Germany itself. And he provides a lot of evidence for that narrative. And that is yet another moving piece among all the others in the game. In fact, those moving pieces on the chessboard, to continue with that analogy, encompass much more than events surrounding Ukraine. As I commented at the show's opening today, this war is being fought on many fronts concerning both the propaganda and legislative arenas where we are daily confronted by the deep state's current holocaust of the hour, including the holocaust variants of nuclear, vaccine, gender, climate, viral, ideological, racist, pandemic, etc. But the big question that leaves so many people in a state of disbelief over the whole situation is why go nuclear? Surely no one would ever seriously consider such a lose-lose option, right? Well, I've got a theory about this. And while this is all speculation, of course, it is based on what I have been observing. First, never assume that because it may be a nuclear war that there are no winners and losers. Even mutual annihilation may be seen as a win by those who have already lost. You see what I'm getting at? Consider this. Given the nature and the scope of their crimes against humanity, Biden and the Democrats really need a big distraction. I mean, a really, really big distraction. Something visible and undeniable to deflect and distract everyone from the real Holocaust that they fear. The coming electoral Holocaust and the consequences that may arise from that. Which brings us back to one of the particular Holocaust variants that is not nuclear, is not particularly visible, but soon will be in the absence of a greater distraction. And that is the coming vaccine Holocaust, which we highlighted back on September 1st. That was when we learned about the absolutely horrifying and yet authoritative predictions about how many people have been injected by the state-sponsored, state-paid-for, and state-mandated gene therapy so far, and how many are expected to perish over the next very few years. And consider what we learned then, in light of the greater question we're looking at here today. Why does Biden need a nuclear distraction? Well, multiple authoritative sources have confirmed that the so-called COVID vaccines clearly destroy the body's immune system. That is all those injections do, and that is enough once it's understood that they are a bioweapon and not a vaccine. The product of an evil but brilliant strategy, this weapon kills millions without anyone even noticing. The vaccine holocaust is practically invisible. Were it not for our ability to communicate with each other as individuals through social media and other public avenues, we might still be unaware of it. That's because those getting sick and dying all have different symptoms that arise at differing times and rates. Unlike a single bomb or explosion, say a nuclear one, that kills large numbers of people in a single, very visible instant that captures the public's attention, 
This event, quote-unquote, occurs in slow motion, over time. Terrifying projections suggest that within a few years the West's population may be decreased by an average of 70%, representing most of those who received an injection. The real question we asked back on September 1st was whether these dark projections can be avoided or whether the damage has already been done. Either way, who wants to be ultimately held to account for the vaccine holocaust? It's not going away. But a nuclear holocaust would sure go a long way towards being able to argue that the future expected deaths by the vaccine holocaust were caused by, well, Russia and Putin, right? <laughs> wow. As to the actual vaccine holocaust itself, and already by October 5th, on Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson's show with her guest, Dr. Roger Hodkinson, we got the latest on not what to expect, but on what has already happened. So we're having evidence that's coming out uh, almost every single day, uh, but um, people are reporting, and you are following very closely uh, these reports on the increased harms, what we're learning about the vaccine harms. What are some things that are uh, alarming you coming across your desk? One of the, one of the big pieces of news over the last uh, couple of days has been um, a, um, a, a substack by a gentleman called uh, Peter uh, Halligan. Peter Halligan has been looking, uh, he, he's a most experienced analyst, ex-financial uh, industry, extremely used to looking at statistics and um, translating them into a summary statement. And this is the summary statement, and I hope your leaders are, are sitting down, holding themselves, because what I'm going to tell you intuitively sounds ridiculous. That's why it's so incredibly important that I say this. These numbers are best estimates at this point in time using government data for the global consequences of the clock shot in terms of death and morbidity, otherwise known as serious adverse events such as heart attack, strokes, pulmonary, pulmonary emboli, etc. We've been focusing for good reason on North American statistics during the last two and a half years. But this man has extrapolated that into the total effect, negative effect, of the clot shot. And these are the numbers. Deaths, global deaths, directly attributable to the vaccine, 20 million, two zero million deaths due to the clot shot and two billion big b two billion serious adverse reactions of the type i described now these numbers are beyond staggering they to to contrast that with history um, vaccines have typically been pulled from the market when the last one, the, the bird flu vaccine, was pulled with only 35, 35 deaths. I hope people can appreciate the scale of what is going on here. An unimaginable carnage. 
which isn't over because that number first of all is the current estimate it does not include future deaths of a similar type which will be cumulative on top of that it does not include stillbirths it does not include those avoidable deaths due to having had a one disease healthcare system for two and a half years with people not being treated or investigated for cancer or treated for, for cancer, for example. Those numbers are not included. The numbers from the lockdowns, the suicides, are not included. And also not included are the future deaths that we're anticipating from a rapid increase in the rate of cancer uh, presentations and uh, fatal infections because of immune suppression induced by the clot shot. Those factors are in addition to those jaw-dropping numbers that I just mentioned. So this is my global take on all of this, Laura Lynn, and it's this. When those numbers start getting out there, courtesy of shows like yours, which is so important because these numbers are not being reported by the mainstream media. When those numbers start percolating through to the large number of people who now will realize the scale of what's happened and how they've been lied to for two and a half lost years of their lives, I'm predicting that we'll create a tale of revulsion in the general voting population that we cannot currently imagine. That, unfortunately, I'm labeling as a good thing. A very disturbing thing came out yesterday. The HHS uh, put out a press release. It's a just, you know, normal stuff here. Just normal stuff. We're just buying some stuff, you know, in case everybody's irradiated. You're like, what? What? Oh, we do this all the time. No, 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 actually, you don't. The press release, they announced they uh, had purchased $290 million worth of a anti-radiation drug. Now, you think of those, um, what are those pills that you, you get for thyroid? You know, they Huh? Iodine? Iodine pills. Okay. We have a bunch of those. Okay, have a bunch of those. That's not this. That's not this. This is $290 million worth of acute radiation sickness medication. These are not potassium iodine pills. You know, you can get those in your go bag. It's well known that the state and federal government agencies have been stockpiling that since the 1950s. The state of Delaware just announced the state of Delaware, gee, who's from there, just announced it will be handing out free potassium iodide tablets to residents on October 13. What? So potassium iodide uh, or iodate is the stuff that you take to prevent your thyroid from absorbing radiation from the dust that you might breathe in. Now, apparently, we have, the U.S. government has enough potassium iodide for every American to have three days' worth of doses. So there are 330 million of us. So that would mean we have about a billion tablets. So I think we're covered on that. 
So what did we just spend $300 million on? Well, the, the drug that the HHS says it just purchased was called N-Plate. And it's made by a company named Amgen. I'm looking into the company now. I'm trying to see if there's any other way to explain this other than um, they know something that we don't know. Now, this drug is used to treat acute ARS. That's acute radiation syndrome. It's used to treat blood cell injuries from severe radiation poisoning. So if you don't take the thyroid blocker stuff, you end up with acute radiation blood poisoning, I guess. So here's what's interesting. Until this press release, there is no evidence of any kind that our research team could find that health and human services have ever had anti-radiation poison medication just sitting around on hand. We don't carry a stockpile of this. Now, here's the other interesting thing. If you look at the MDSS, the Material Data Safety Sheet, and you look for this drug from, uh, uh, from Amgen, the storage half-life for N-plate, which is in an IV bag, is required to be refrigerated at all times. And it only has a shelf life of 18 months. Why did we just spend $300 million on something we've never purchased before? It is for serious radiation poisoning. It has to be refrigerated at all times. Uh, And it only has a shelf life of 18 months. I am afraid that our government either knows nukes are coming or is itching for nukes to come. I, I, I just, I, I can't explain what we're doing. We are antagonizing every step of the way in this war. And by the way, we started some more tough talk against China yesterday. What? Am I the only person in America that says, let's not go to war? This election is vital. It's the most important election. Shut up. We have a president who says, we're close to Armageddon. The guy doesn't know what time it is for pudding. And he's telling our Pentagon, the guy who's wrong about everything, telling our Pentagon what to do, and our Pentagon has completely lost their mind. You, you, we are watching a play, except this time, you know, it's a, it's a whodunit murder mystery. Let's go to the play, except the ones who get killed are the audience. Now you have to ask yourself... <laughs> then why aren't we having wall-to-wall conversations about nuclear war? We are being led by the elites, and we are being led into death chambers, it seems, almost every day. Look Look at what we're doing. Look at what we're doing on every front. Well, you know what? We're not going to prosecute criminals. Oh, okay. All right. Streets are on fire. In some cities, literally. Really bad idea. You know what? 
we're just going to keep printing money. We're just, yeah, that's fine. Are you kidding me? How are you going to afford food in a year? And they just keep spending. They just keep spending. How about gas? We're depleting the strategic oil reserve, the lowest it's been in 40 years. That not only ties to what we're doing with with gasoline and, you know, the environment. Shouldn't we have a conversation about the shouldn't half the America half of America who is only watching CNN and all of the New York Times? Shouldn't they be involved in this? Shouldn't they know? Shouldn't they know? Shouldn't somebody be talking on those channels going, hey, 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 guys, I just want to let you know, here's the real picture. Now, what do we do about it? They're not having that conversation. The Glenn Beck Program. They're hearing Putin bad. Yeah, Putin bad. Well, that pretty much brings us full circle, doesn't it? That, of course, was Glenn Beck, as heard on his own show of October 10th. You know, if you stop and think about it, both the Trump derangement syndrome and the Putin derangement syndrome can be said to be derivatives of the mass formation process that was described by Matthias Desmet. People are using them, Putin and Trump, that is, as the focus of their unidentified anxieties. If you ask them for specifics or why they feel so hostilely predisposed to either Trump or Putin, they cannot or will not tell you. And maybe that speaks to the question of why they're not having that conversation that Beck was referring to. Putin bad, Trump bad. Well, that's about as far as they can carry their own empty arguments. Now, the two Alexanders earlier on the Duran ended up concluding that the very ideological ruling class with a visceral hatred of Putin and of Russia as a whole is not capable of listening to objective advice. They superficially believed that they were winning in Ukraine because they did not understand. They are incompetent. Well, that reminded me of financial advisor Martin Armstrong, who always points to this very phenomenon, the degree of stupidity and outright ignorance that exists among the ruling elites throughout the Western nations. In fact, he emphasized, he was unable to have any intelligent conversations about economics or financial matters with any of the world leaders he was consulted to advise, save for a single exception. And that exception was Margaret Thatcher. But political incompetence is just the tip of the political iceberg of ignorance. Fear is what drives a lot of political action, and fear is what was projected by Joe Biden in that creepy and haunting September 1st speech he made in Philadelphia. Yikes! Described as a speech about the ongoing threats to democracy in the United States, that threat, of course, was Donald Trump. And how do I know that? Well, because Biden said so in his speech, remember? Quote, Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. They embrace anger. They thrive on chaos. They live not in the light of truth, but in the shadow of lies. You saw law enforcement brutally attacked on January 6th. We can't allow violence to be normalized in this country. We're all called by duty and conscience to confront extremists who put their own pursuit of power above all else. End quote. Well, of course, 
All of that was pure projection. It always is. Everything here from the left is projection. They're telling you about themselves, not about you. And as such, it attests to the reality that it is Biden who is the real threat to democracy in the United States. Projection is a form of psychological or tactical self-defense primarily used by those guilty of whatever accusations are being projected. Worse, Biden's terrorist rhetoric created expectations of a false flag event, and it was that that rightly caused the greatest concern. And when Biden talked about a nuclear threat, he was most likely talking about his own planned false flag event that he can blame later on Putin and Russia. That's how this script has been writing itself for a long time now, and I'd like to see somebody switch the plot. But getting back to Glenn Beck's coverage of that disturbing press release announcing $290 million being spent on an anti-radiation drug. Why do I have this strange feeling that the tablets Glenn Beck was talking about may be no different than the experimental gene therapy injections? First, create a crisis. Second, offer the state-sanctioned and paid-for solution. Really? These drugs have to be kept refrigerated? And they have a limited shelf life? Now, where have I heard that one before? But not only have we been hearing about the U.S. government's purchase of anti-radiation drugs, and not only have we seen and heard New York City's nuclear PSA advising New Yorkers how to respond after surviving a nuclear attack, but the city of Denver, apparently, recently advised its citizens to prepare what they called bug-out bags so that people can leave the city in a hurry should some disaster befall the city. Did you know that Denver Airport is sitting right on top of a huge military complex? And if that was to be struck by a nuclear weapon, Denver would not be a city fortunate enough to be merely devastated by an air blast. And if anything, that should explain why bug-out bags and why powerful anti-radiation drugs are being so touted. (laughs) You know, honestly, I can't even believe I'm talking about anything like this. This stuff is unreal. It's amazing how many Western pundits are still struggling with the enigma of Vladimir Putin. They never take Putin seriously, concluding that he's always just putting on a Russian front. But that's the nature of all wars, whether cold or hot. Why else all the fuss and bother about something called the information wars? I'll tell you why. Nuclear or not, in the end, just as the pen is mightier than the sword, the word remains mightier than the bomb. So spread the word, because that's certainly what we plan to be doing when you join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be You know, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Stealing. And a deserter, too. Suppose you're gonna have him shot, sir? No. We have something much better in store for the young lieutenant. God! (laughs) Take this man to the transportation officer in town and give him this order. You are being sent to the Russian front. No, Colonel, not that. That's the place for him, a Russian front. Take it away.
Russian front. It's what I call justice. <laughs> even better than that. It's getting even better. <laughs> you know, it'd be a funny thing if... Um, what? If he really wanted to go to the Russian front. Yeah. <laughs> that would be funny. 